This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapters 3 and 4. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Please be seated. When the Apostle Paul commands us to stand firm in chapter 4, verse 1, and when he promises peace in verses 7 and 9, of chapter 4. He commands something and he promises something uh, that I'm convinced all of us want. I I don't know of anybody who who doesn't want uh, more stability, more firmness, more consistency, uh, more peace in their life. I think we're tired of being knocked over. Uh, I think we're tired of running in fear. I think we're tired of running ahead uh, in presumption. I don't think any of us would prefer a weightless, turbulent, um, disorienting, flighty, uh, foam-like existence where we're just sort of tossed to and fro by circumstance and conflict and anxiety. I would personally love to get to the place uh, where, where I'm experiencing less volatility in my relationships. I would love to get to the place where I'm experiencing less emotional volatility as I engage my circumstances. Uh, I'd love to get to the place right this minute uh, where I experience less anxiety over the future, less anxiety about how the sermon goes, uh, less anxiety about whether or not uh, my rental house in Lakeland will rent, less anxiety uh, about uh, whether or not we'll make budget again this quarter. I would love to see an increase in firmness and stability and peace and a decrease in volatility, restlessness, uh, turbulent uh, living. Uh, steadfastness is a hallmark of mature Christians. 
okay? The ability to stand firm and to stand into the waves of life and the undertow of life, steadfastness. That's what this morning's sermon is all about. It's about standing firm. It's about having peace. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now in summary fashion most of the sermon in a sentence or two. I kind of have to tell you what the whole sermon's about in order to break up the points. So let me give it to you like this. You can fall asleep after this, okay? We can increasingly stand firm when we take all that there is to know about the gospel and push it into the specific details of our lives. Stability comes when we take all of the historic and global and eternal and big picture truths and promises of the gospel, take them off the shelf, massage them into our relationships into our emotions as we get engage experiences, as we massage those truths into our perspective on the future. From 50,000 feet, stability comes when you take a global, eternal, historic truth of who you are in Jesus and what you have in Him. And when you take that and you massage it into the nitty-gritty details of life, you'll have peace. I'll show it to you quickly in the text, okay, and then we'll unpack it. At the end of chapter 3, Paul tells us that believers are citizens of heaven. Our ultimate identity is in heaven. And he says, we eagerly await our Savior, the Savior who lived and died for us, and he will transform this lowly body of suffering, and he will transform us into a glorious body that is like his body, and we will live with him forever in heaven. We will live into our ultimate citizenship. And with this in mind, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 4, therefore, or in light of this, stand firm. But then Paul says, stand firm thus, or he says, stand firm in these following ways. And then chapter 4, the first nine verses, is Paul explaining to us the difference it will make in our lives if we stand firm in our citizenship in heaven. The fact that our name is in the book of life, verse 3, should impact how we relate to each other, how we agree with each other. Uh, verses 4 to 6, Paul calls us to a life free of anxiety, free of worry, a life filled with rejoicing and reasonable, reasonableness and grateful prayer. But he doesn't say, do it. You can do it. Try really hard. Pull this off. Instead, he says, to the extent that we keep in mind that the Lord is at hand, that Jesus is coming back. To that extent, we'll be able to live free of anxiety and full of joy. Do you see the principle? Okay, the big picture, historic, global, eternal truths and promises of the gospel, they have to be grabbed a hold of. They have to be taken off the shelf. They have to be massaged into our lives. And by that, I mean relationships, emotions, and thinking about the future. And to the extent that we do that, we'll be able to stand firm. We'll be able to experience peace, even in the midst of horrific trials, even in the midst of turbulent times. Okay, so here's our three points. Uh, In order to stand firm, in order to have peace, you have to know you're a citizen, you have to apply your citizenship, and you have to experience your king. Know you're a citizen, apply your citizenship, and experience your king. First, you have to know you're a citizen. The logic here is really, really obvious. If you're going to massage the truths of the gospel into the details of life, in order to stand firm, you have to know the gospel. You have to increasingly saturate your life with all of the truths and the promises of the gospel. If we truncate the gospel, if we reduce the gospel, if we we forget aspects of who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us, 
then we may not have available to us the specific uh, gospel promises and truths that we will need in a particular instance of life. Uh, In other words, Paul doesn't take just any gospel promise and apply it in chapter 4. He takes specific promises and applies them in chapter 4. It it would be like a doctor. Well, can't use the word doctor. It would be like someone who uh, went to med school. And they went for about half of the time, and during that time, they went to about half of the classes. But when they got halfway through, convinced that they knew everything there is to know about medicine, they decided to leave school and, and move to some third-world country and, and help uh, bring peace and prosperity to the land. And so the doctor moves out, and for a few years, he gets away with it, okay? Uh, for, for a few years, all the illnesses that present themselves to the doctor are, are illnesses that he's familiar with, and, and so he applies the right remedy. But at some point, the doctor comes across, um, uh, he, he comes across something alarming and something urgent and, and something lethal, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he and his patient are both in trouble. Had he gone to the, all the classes, had he gone to all of school, had he continued and continued education, he would have known what remedy and medicine to apply to the situation. If you're going to have peace and stability in life, you have to know the gospel deeply and specifically. Step one to living a peaceful life is growing in your understanding of the gospel deeply and specifically. I'll put it to you like this. When I said that you have to know the gospel to stand firm, if your mind, if your mind didn't run all the way to you in your glorious body, standing in the new heaven and the new earth, you've truncated the gospel. That if when I said you have to know the gospel to stand firm, if you said, yeah, I know the gospel, I'm forgiven, you're about 5% of the way there. If you say, well, I I know the gospel, I'm righteous in God's sight. I'm righteous because Jesus has given me his life and his record. And I I would say you have about 10% of the medicine you need. You have to add to that the totality of the good news of Jesus, past, present, and future. We're not just forgiven and righteous, we're adopted children of God. We're not just adopted children of God. We're empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is saving us. The gospel tells us that God is inside of us right now, transforming us, taking us from one degree of glory to the next, from one shade to the next, making us more righteous. In temptation, if you forget that, you're done. You have the wrong medicine. Not only that, when I say we have to know the gospel to stand firm, I have to, we have to know not that I have been saved and I will be saved, or, or I am being saved, but that, that I will be saved. Jesus will return. He'll bring with him the new heaven and the new earth, the heavenly city, the new city, and he will bring with him the power that he has to transform our lowly body, bodies that can feel pain, bodies that can commit sin, bodies that can physically fail us and will fail us and die. He'll transform those lowly bodies to be like his glorious, resurrected body, a body that cannot sin, cannot feel pain, cannot get sick, will never die. Paul, in saying, keep your citizenship in mind, he's saying you've got to remember the totality of the gospel in order to stand firm, verse 1, in the Lord. So step one of becoming one who stands firm, one who has peace in turbulent times, is to proactively Learn and reflect on and rehearse the totality of the gospel message. To to learn all of the available prescriptions, if you will. If you want to to stand firm in the future, you have to be a woman or a man of gospel disciplines in the present. 
If we want to have peace next Tuesday, we need to read the Bible next Tuesday morning. Uh, If we want to stand firm in the tragedy of next week that is inevitable for all of us, we need to be at church learning and experiencing the gospel next Sunday. The Sunday after is too late. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying proactively learn and reflect and rehearse the totality of the gospel. Uh, If you look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, you're going to see this call to proactive training. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is not calling us to a list of behaviors that we're supposed to do. He's calling us to a list of realities that we're supposed to think about. There's a big difference. He is not saying, do this. He's saying, think about this. He's trying to get our minds full of the new heaven and the new earth. Think about it like this. I know this is new. I know this is different than when we read a list like that. We think, I've got to do that. But it's not what Paul says. He says, think about it. And in the context, it's clear. He's saying, think about heaven. Paul is saying, think about and ponder and reflect on Jesus. He's the only whoever that you know who fits that list. Paul is saying, think about, ponder, and reflect on heaven, your place of citizenship. It's the only whatever that fully fits that list. And Paul is saying, think about yourself in your glorious body when you will be true and noble and righteous and chaste and lovely and attractive and commendable. He's saying, think about those things. Proactive pursuit of all that is promised to us in the gospel. Keep reading in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Paul is saying the doctrine that I have taught you and the spiritual disciplines that I have modeled for you. He, He says not only think about these things, he's saying practice these disciplines. Step one to standing firm is saturate your heart in the gospel by the means of grace. If we want to have peace in tumultuous times, we have to learn all of the gospel now or then it will be too late. So think about it like this. If I told you that right now you had five minutes to warm up and you had to run 10 miles uh, uh, in the next 60 minutes, could you do it? I think there's like three of you in our body that might on adrenaline and fear be able to pull that off. (laughs) If after that you came to the finish line and I said, I want you to tread water in the waves of the ocean for eight hours, could you do it? You could do it only if You've been training like a triathlete for months. Only if you're physically fit could you pull that off. And likewise, the only way to run and swim and stand firm in the next tsunami, spiritual tsunami, is to work out spiritually now and be prepared. That's what Paul is saying. Think about these things. Practice these things. So first... In order to stand firm, in order to have peace, uh, we have to know that we're a citizen in heaven. We have to know the totality of the good news in Jesus. Okay, so secondly, in order to stand firm, in order to live a sturdy life, uh, to have internal peace, we have to apply our citizenship. And I didn't say apply for citizenship. 
Uh, I said, apply your citizenship, something you already have. So again, go back to verse 1. Therefore, so in light of who you are, stand firm thus, or stand firm in these specific ways. And then Paul, in in chapter 4, as I've said, he's going to walk into the three aspects of life uh, that cause turbulence. He's going to walk into those three arenas of life that cause waves and disruption. He's going to take these high-level gospel truths, and he's going to massage them into relationships. Verse 2 and 3. Present circumstances, uh, verse 4 and 5. Potential future difficulties, verse 6. Okay, so we're going to go through these quickly. I realize that every one of these verses would be a great sermon in and of itself by someone besides me, but um, we don't have time for that this morning. We're going from a high level. We're, We're looking at the forest, not the trees. We have to see enough about the tree to understand the forest, okay? So first, Applying our heavenly citizenship to relationships or or thinking about personal disagreements. Look at verse 2. He says, I entreat or I beg uh, Euodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. And so Paul does not command these two women to forgive and reconcile and make restitution. Okay, our minds go there. But he simply says, I want them to agree. I want them to have the same mind. Okay, so there's not necessarily a personal offense involved uh, in what's going on here. These are two influential women. They they agree on the gospel. Uh, They're disagreeing over something else. And their squabble is affecting the whole body. We don't know what it is. It could be theology. It could be philosophy of ministry. It could be a disagreement over the wise path forward for the community. Uh, it could be how to treat some individual. Uh, but essentially, uh, Euodia and Sintiki are in disagreement. And, and look at where Paul goes, if you will, in verse 3. First, he goes to the local authority in the church. And then second, he goes to a macro truth that's going to apply uh, the details of the gospel to life. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So Paul asks a person to help. And it's literally the word for arrest or seize or catch uh, these women. And so the exact identity of this true companion, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that there's been broad speculation as to who this uh, individual is, this loyal yoke fellow. Um, Historically, uh, scholars have thought that this is anyone from the gospel uh, writer Luke to Paul's secret wife in Philippi. Uh, Some have even argued, early church fathers argued that this uh, is Lydia. But, but in reality, um, no one has argued uh, for uh, Paul's secret wife in quite some time because the, the, the Greek is decidedly uh, masculine. But the reason they're tempted uh, to say that this is Paul's wife is because companion is the word yoke fellow. It's the word for being in a yoke with someone, which is Jesus' language uh, for marriage. Uh, But the point is this, is that Paul is saying uh, to the one who would have worked most closely to him in Philippi, the one in a yoke with Paul, uh, he he is saying, uh, listen, I want you to go and arrest and seize and get a hold of these influential, dear to me, co-strivers with me in the gospel. And and I I want you uh, to go and help them to agree. Help them to put aside their differences and work together. But more importantly for us, and ultimately in the passage, look to what Paul goes to. Look at his trump card. He says of Euodia and Sintiki and himself and Clement and the companion and the other fellow workers, he says their names are in the book of life. 
And so he doesn't give three steps to reconciliation. He doesn't give seven steps to, ha- to helping older women. He just gives this huge truth. Our names are in the book of life. And he's saying that we have to take this eternal, macro, historic, big picture reality, and we have to figure out how it applies to the minutia of today. So from Daniel 12 in the Old Testament to Revelation in the New Testament, the Bible says there is a book called the book of life. It's God's list. It's God's role. God has written this book himself. In fact, we we learn in Revelation he wrote this book before the foundations uh, of the world. And the Bible says that this is God's list of those people who belong to him in heaven uh, by grace. They're the citizens of heaven. They're the ones who have washed their robes white in the red blood of Jesus. And Paul says, hey, you two, you two who want to be separate and distinct and not associate with each other, he's like, your names have been together forever in the book of life. You're going to be neighbors forever. Get used to it. He's like, there's no division. There's no denomination. There's no falling out in heaven. Just agreement. And he's saying, take hold of that reality. Take that truth off the shelf and press it into the here and now. He's saying stability and peace for you and your families and the body at Philippi and the church at large is dependent upon you taking a huge truth, the right huge truth, and applying it to the here and now. Secondly, more quickly, Paul Paul applies our citizenship to our present circumstances. Pick up in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So a major theme in Philippians. And again, Paul is saying, I want a present tense joy and gladness regardless of what's going on in your life. Uh, But further, uh, Paul uh, calls for a joy that's sort of grounded in and focused on the Lord. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. So what Paul is saying is he's saying in good circumstances, rejoice in the Lord, not your circumstances. Paul is saying in bad circumstances, rejoice in the Lord and don't be dominated by your circumstance. And then he writes in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he plays the trump card. He gives the high-level truth. He says the Lord's at hand. The Savior who lived for you, the Savior who died for you, he's close, he's near, he's coming back. In light of this, rejoice in him always, regardless of your circumstances, and this is the most reasonable thing you can do. I love how the old authorized version, the King James, uh, renders verse 5. It says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The word, the word here, uh, moderation, reasonableness, it's not a word that's opposed to emotion, but it's a word that describes a mature person that doesn't have too high highs or too low lows. They're moderate in their response to circumstances. So let's tie it together. What will work against sturdiness, standing firm, living steadfast? What works against peace? Highs that are excessively high and lows that are excessively low. Either of these will bring turbulence to our lives. Think about it. If your deepest joy is based upon a promotion, your life is on shaky and tumultuous ground. You'll constantly be tossed to and fro by the circumstance of your life. But if the prospect of losing your job robs you of your deepest joy, you're also in trouble. But if your baseline joy and gladness and hope are in the Lord Jesus and in his imminent return and in the fact that he's going to transform you into glory, if that's your hope, 
that's your joy, if that's your gladness, if that's what you're rejoicing in, you're always on solid ground, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. So third and finally, Paul again is going to apply the gospel, the totality of the gospel, the fullness of it to future uncertainties. Or or said differently, Paul shows us the difference our citizenship in heaven makes on anxiety. Okay? Uh, End of verse 5 again. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, so listen, as we hear Paul say, don't be anxious about anything. You have to remember that, that two chapters before this, he said he was anxious about the church in Philippi. And you have to remember that he said Timothy, among whom there is no rivals from where he stands, he says Timothy is going to be genuinely concerned for you. That's the word anxious, same Greek word. Paul says in Second excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 that we're supposed to care for each other. The, the translator should just be honest and say we're supposed to be anxious for each other. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he, car- he says positively, I carry anxiety in me for all of the churches that I have planted. So in a culture where it's an oral society in which they would have listened to the whole letter, first, when Paul says, don't be anxious in anything, he knows that they just heard him say, I've been anxious for you. And secondly, okay, when Paul is here talking about anxiety, he is not necessarily talking about all that we mean when we use that term 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, excuse me. Okay, listen, this is close. Listen closely, this is important. The fact is this. Many of us experience anxiety and panic and worry that is not sin. It's because we live in a broken world and our bodies are broken. It may be because we've been sinned against in horrific ways in the past. There are times in our life where we're anxious and worried and panicked and we're not guilty for it. Having said that, additionally, every one of us to some degree, is guilty of the sin of anxiety. So so when Paul commands, don't be anxious about anything, he's talking about anxiety the way Jesus taught about it in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? This is a sin that, trust me, we're all guilty of. Parsing it out in reflection, prayer, and community is our responsibility, uh, but trust me, we're all guilty here, Okay? Matthew 6, 25 and following, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34 in Matthew 6, do not be anxious, the word for worried, about tomorrow. So the anxiety that Paul is forbidding is this sinful worry over future circumstances. Reasonableness is how we interact with current circumstances. Uh, uh, Anxiety is the wrong way to interact with future circumstances. Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 6 in Matthew, and which of you, and now he's going to get at the motivation for anxiety. This is the part we repent over. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his life? He's like, it's just a proud attempt to add to your life. When you're anxious, anxiety is this it's snacking 
on your solution to future circumstances instead of feasting on God and his promises. Anxiety is snacking on my solution to future circumstances instead of feasting on God and his promises. Anxiety is a snack that will sustain you for an hour and God is offering you an eternity. So in regards to that proud anxiety, Paul forbids it and he calls us to prayer. Get back to our passage in Philippians 4. Three times, three different words in verse 6. Paul says that the release The freedom from anxiety is found in humble and dependent uh, prayer, okay? So Paul says the release for our anxiety is found in prayer to God, prayer, supplication, and making requests. He's saying, let God know about your concerns and tell him what your request is and then leave it in his hands. In Matthew 6, Jesus says you're valuable to God. The Father loves you. He takes care of the flowers in the field. He will take care of you. And so further, if you go back to our passage in Philippians 4, Paul commands a heart posture. Okay, you got to see this. Anxiety is an experience in the heart. Anxiety is something you feel. Prayer is something you do. But Paul also calls for this, this heart posture. It's an experience. He calls for gratitude by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in this text is not some form of prayer. Paul is saying, I want you to make your request with Thanksgiving. And we're like, what do I have to be thankful for? I may lose my job tomorrow. I may find out that I have cancer tomorrow. I may lose my favorite aunt to cancer tomorrow. What do I have to be thankful for? And Paul's like, I just told you, the Lord's at hand. You're a citizen of heaven. Your Lord, the one who lived for you and died for you, he's near. He's coming back. When he comes back, you get a glorious body. And Paul's saying, take what is certain about your future and crush the anxiety over what might happen in the future. But Paul is saying you have to take what is certain, what is certainly true forever, and have it overwhelm what might happen for a season. Yes, we might lose our job. We might lose our car. But be thankful that you'll be richly supplied forever in heaven. Yes, we might lose our health. We we might lose our life to cancer. But be thankful that you'll be healthy forever in your glorious body. I was going to say you might lose. I'm pretty sure you will lose loved ones to cancer and pneumonia and AIDS and ALS and tragic accidents. But be thankful that you'll live forever in perfect harmony with those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And Paul's like, it's all by grace. All of this is an unconditional gift of love from God to you. It's all yours because Jesus lived for you and he died for you and he's he's been raised again and he's going to come back and get you. Finally, in order to stand firm, In order to live steadfastly, in order to have a peace-filled life, you have to experience your king. Now, i got to tell you this. Uh, You cannot stand firm and you cannot know internal peace unless you experience the presence of your king. You can think it through and that will not give you peace. You can pray it out and that will not give you peace. 
the actual peace and steadfastness and firm standing that we need and long for only comes from the presence of God. What we need is described in verse 7. We need the peace of God, the personified peace of God, to guard our hearts and our minds. And the word, the word guard is, is garrison. The picture that Paul wants us to see is he wants us to see uh, guards working together to protect a fort. So some of the guards are, are in watchtowers, and they're calling out where the enemy is. Some of the guards are actually marching around the fort, uh, keeping a lookout and slaying all enemy intruders. And Paul's saying, listen, for you to stand firm, what you need is this. You need God's peace to stand guard around your heart and your mind and protect you from anxiety and protect you from being knocked over and protect you from being knocked out and protect you from, being run, from running scared. And then he says, look at, look at verse 9. This is what we need. We need the God of peace to be with us. So if you look at these two ideas in 7 and 9, the peace of God and the God of peace, Paul is saying that we need God himself in the fort with us. If the fort is our mind and our heart, we need God in our heart. And it's his peace. It's the peace that belongs to him. It's his lack of anxiety, his lack of fear, his refusal to run away when scared, his uh, ability uh, to, to stand guard. It's his peace that marches around our heart and our soul and our mind, and it's there because God is there. And this is what we need to stand firm. The experience of our king inside of our hearts. What we need, by definition, eludes definition. What we need, by definition, is not definable, other than to say, it surpasses human understanding. Verse 7. And I say, and you say, oh man, give me that. Give me that tangible, palatable, inexplicable, undeniable experience of God, the Holy Ghost. I want it. I need it. How do I get it? I want to be so at peace that everyone around me is astounded and that, that I'm shocked. And when people say, how? How can you be like this? I have to just say it's beyond understanding. I can't fully explain it to you. I, I can begin to bear witness to it, but I can't actually articulate it. I can't put into words the deep soul level, spirit level, peace and sturdiness and weight that I feel and I'm experiencing and I'm knowing right now. And we say, I want that. I'll sign up for that. How do I get that? I already told you. Look at verses 6 and 7. Pray with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will march around your heart. How do I get it? I told you. Look at verses 8 and 9. Think about these things and practice these things. And the peace of God will be with you. In other words, our experience of the peaceful presence of God is conditional. Ooh, I can't believe I just said that. Our experience of the peaceful presence of God is Conditional. I didn't say God's presence is conditional. I said our experience is conditional. It's conditional on this. Obeying what Paul commands. Living out what he says. Trusting God and, and taking all of these gospel promises and truths and deeply and specifically ma massaging them into our lives. James says in chapter 4, draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you. It says in Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. 
Now, of course, we know in our good theology, if we obey, it's proof that the Holy Spirit's already inside of us. But our experience of Him and our experience of His benefits grows when we obey. So you're there at the fork in the road. To the left is fighting and disagreeing and living an isolated life. Uh, To the right is agreeing with other believers on the gospel and, and agreeing not to bicker over lesser things. To the right is the very presence and peace of God. To the left is anxiety and stress and broken relationship and pain. You're at the fork in the road. To the left is the high highs and low lows. It's living off of idols and false saviors and false hopes. And to the right is reasonableness, emotional moderation. To the right is the opportunity to happy your heart in the Lord and in His gospel, to not be controlled by the highs and lows of life, but to be controlled and protected by the very presence and the very peace and the very strength of God. You're at the fork in the road. To the left is anxiety, a a quick snack of worry and finite planning. To the right is prayer and dependence and thanksgiving for the gospel, a feast no matter what happens next. To the right is peace that is experienced, peace that you would love to explain, peace that can't fully be explained. A step to the right is a step into your citizenship. It's a step into enjoying your king's presence. It's a step into what is true about you regardless of what you choose. A step to the right is a step into what is true about you regardless of what you choose. It's the step of faith. Now, I've told you over and over, this is our framework for Philippians. Do nothing. Gain everything. I almost just didn't put the slide up this week. Do nothing. Gain everything. Give anything. And you're thinking with me. How can that be true? That I do nothing to gain everything if God's peace is conditional. I'm glad we talked about this last week. We said that doing nothing is an intentional, purposeful doing of nothing. You tell me, which is doing nothing? Anxiety or grateful prayer? Anxiety is doing something to try and gain peace. Grateful prayer is intentionally doing nothing. It's faith. You do nothing to gain everything. Second, Listen, if you're a Christian, you don't have to experience peace now to have it forever. You don't. You don't have to experience peace now to have it forever. If you're a Christian, you'll eventually gain everything, including internal peace. So obedience is not gaining anything. It's simply an invitation to step into your inheritance now. It's an invitation to step into what you already have. Said more biblically, obedience is an invitation to step into the down payment of your inheritance now. It's an invitation to step into the presence of the Holy Spirit. How can you be sure that when you go to the right and not the left, or the left and not the right, depending on your political persuasion, how can you be sure that God will greet you and and stay with you and guard you and march around your heart? You can be sure because your king lived beautifully and faithfully and obediently and God abandoned him. God abandoned him on the cross. 
You can know that God will never leave you nor forsake you because Jesus took our sin, he took our guilt, he took the Father's wrath, and he was left. He was abandoned. He was forsaken on the cross. And he asks the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't get a response. But this is the answer. I'm forsaking you so that I never have to forsake them. I'm abandoning you so that I can never abandon them. They're in the book of life. They're my children. I value them and I love them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Fill our hearts with gratitude. We thank you that you decided to go to the cross instead of go back to heaven after your perfect life. We thank you that you chose hell over heaven so that we can have heaven in your place. We thank you, Jesus, that you have made such amazing promises to us uh, now and forever. We do pray. We do pray that you would lead us and call us and draw us and that from inside of us, you would take us to the place of obedience and joy and peace and firmness. Surely in this life, pain will come. Surely in this life, a broken relationship will come. Uh, surely uh, in this life, we will sin in horrible ways we cannot imagine. Would you take us into the path of your gospel and our inheritance in your Holy Spirit? In 